Welcome, everyone, to another episode of React Native Radio. Today on the panel, we have me, Tim Jung, Ricky Romero, and James Brenton. Also joining us today is our guest, Pertu. And Pertu, if you want, you can introduce yourself and just kind of give us a high-level overview. And please do take the time to pronounce your name for our guest, too, because you are much better at it than I am. <laughs> yeah, so hi, I'm Pertu Lahti. Uh, it's a it's a Finnish name, so that's why it's so difficult, like many of the other Finnish names. I'm a software engineer. I used to also be a designer, so I would say that I'm a both developer and a designer. Uh, currently developing products to help people to sleep better at my own company, which I'm also co-founder co in. And yeah, that's about it, I think. Early in my career, I figured out which jobs were worth working at and which ones weren't, mostly by trial and error. I created a system that I used to find jobs and later contracts as a freelancer. If you're looking for a job or trying to figure out where you should go next, then check out my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. The book walks you through figuring out what you want, vetting companies that meet your criteria, meeting that company's employees, and getting them to recommend you for a job. Don't settle for whoever has listed their job on the job board. Go out and proactively find the job you'll love. Buy the book at devchat.tv jobbook. That's devchat.tv slash job book. Awesome. Well, welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thank um, you. So I know kind of from a high level overview, we're going to be talking a lot about prototyping. And uh, do you kind of want to explain just what prototyping even is? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think I might have a, I think it's generally shared view on what prototype actually means. So building something really fast that you can get feedback on it. Uh, so there's uh, for me why why prototyping is so so cool is actually that i'm really bad at like doing this how would you say uh building something that someone has already built like i've always liked the idea of venturing into somewhere unknown uh and i've always kind of felt that that's where my calling is. So that's why, as I mentioned, I, I used to be a designer and, and there the thing that actually interested me was building the stuff, not really just like talking to the users. That was of course cool, but actually learning about them, learning what their problem was and then building some kind of solution and getting the feedback on that. So I, I kind of got addicted on that. And that I think that's the, like the main idea in prototyping is, is not really about the build process itself, uh, although that is an interesting subject in itself, but actually the, the process, how you can come from basically nothing and actually build something really cool that actually someone wants to use. So that's, that's my take on why, why prototyping what it is. Uh, so building something fast and actually getting results with it. So the result is the, like the main point in my opinion. That's awesome, man. Um, yeah. Like I can tell, like, um, you know, getting that instant feedback is pretty like, um, you know, important because, you know, you don't want to build something and put so many hours towards, you know, developing something. And then you find out that way you kind of went down the wrong path. So I can see why, like, it's so, um, you know, important to prototype your, your stuff first. Yeah. And there's a, actually, I've learned this, the kind of the hard way as well once. Uh, so before I actually started that my, my most recent venture, this company that I'm currently building, it was actually a research project at, at, at a university. And I, I joined this team of researchers who kind of came to me and said that build us a product. I was like, what product? And they were like, 
just something that is nice to use and sells and it has that's to the fix hardest thing up. right yeah yeah <laughs> like and it also has something and you're like oh okay i don't know yeah like, there was also on? yeah there was also that get people to sleep better so that was like okay you're kind of asking for a miracle but what do you say if we just start like prototyping this thing out so we actually build a lot of things uh a lot of really stupid things like we we build a game where you would basically compete against your friends in who sleeps sleeps the best. Uh, but all of those brought really valuable learning. And we actually, it was a, the year we spent on that, like doing just, uh, like researchers will call it that it was a waste of time, but I think that was the best use of our time in that sense. It was just, it was just doing like research, what they originally wanted to do. Uh, so yeah, yeah. So you can you can learn a lot about it uh, in the early phases, especially. Have you guys started developing anything yet? Yeah, we're currently we have a product out that that does that based on on those fi- findings, actually. So how so, many prototype yeah. iterations did you have to go through until you started developing? Uh, we did. We went through four when when it was under under the university research program. And when we started the company with my, my co-founder, we built the first version. I would still say that it was a prototype because it changed so much after that. Uh, we built that in about a month and then we kind of completely pivoted from there. <laughs> so five at this point, but also every new product iteration that we make, we kind of start out from the prototype idea. So. So you guys like, um, even though you guys develop and then you kind of jump back into like prototyping to make a new feature, stuff like that. Yeah, we even do that with customers. So, so for example, the uh, first customer we had was the, I think it's the largest life insurance provider here in Finland. And they were basically asking a completely different thing that we were currently providing at that point. So we actually made, a, made an agreement with them that we would actually build something completely new on top of the like the original idea that we had uh and we solved that idea they didn't know that we hadn't yet built anything on based on that uh but we did that we learned a lot uh we implemented some of those things into our app the customers happy because they actually got what they asked for instead of us just selling something that they were expecting uh to have basically from the start uh, or just guessing what they wanted, but instead of actually taking their feedback and, and what what they wanted into the to, into the product. So yeah. So I guess one thing that I actually find interesting is you actually specifically kind of landed on React Native as your preferred way to prototype these things. Um, what was it like? Did you have like an exploratory process or something before you landed on React Native? And like, what were like the kind of the reasons why you ended up thinking like, oh, you should definitely prototype in React Native? Yeah, it was actually, that was actually a longer process. So uh, where the idea, where I've kind of learned to prototype and build prototype really fast doesn't come from this project, but it comes from actually the, I think there's about 70 hackathons that I've participated in. And when those, we used to build like like a lot of stuff over the weekends. Uh, A lot of them never went anywhere, but some of them actually ended up as real products that someone wanted to buy. And that was in my previous company. Uh, we were pretty good at doing those, like the, like using the hackathon as a way of selling stuff. Uh, but because we were such a small company, not that many companies actually wanted to trust us. So they didn't want to buy big projects from us. They were like, can you do this in two months? And, and we pay you maybe $20,000 or something like that. And it was like, 
yeah, we'll have to just otherwise we go bankrupt. So we just do go on those really small projects. And we kind of learned there uh, what was actually useful for prototyping. So getting something out fast, we noticed that, okay, web technologies are really good for that. But then also when you get to the feedback part, like a lot of people notice that, hey, this app that I'm currently using on my mobile phone, it doesn't, it isn't as sleek as I was expecting. So they were expecting these kind of like native experiences. So that's where we kind of got into trying React Native and it kind of felt like the perfect fit uh, at that point. So that's where it kind of came from that. Uh, Web technology is really good, but there is, you can't really uh, highlight how, how important the, like the user feedback on the experience is. And there were, there, that's where we got the idea to try out React Native and kind of got in, onto the track. And, uh, and it has worked after that as well. Like, you can pretty easily build uh, even web applications that you run on a browser with React Native, with React Native web these days. So I think it's a pretty good starting point for, for prototyping in that sense. So what does your sort of prototyping procedure look like start to finish? Do you just go, I've got an idea to build an app, let's get a React Native template, smash some code into it, or are the drawings, do you have a little bit of a wireframe you think through first, or are you just straight in on the code? Uh, depends a little bit on the team size. So if we, if we have, for example, three people, I, I, in the best scenario, we have one person that is really like a designer and also I would say kind of like a product manager as well, talking to customers a little bit more or at least communicating. But in, in, in general, I want the whole team to work on the product and also talk to the users. So in, in those cases where we don't have, for example, a designer, we start with, basically talking to the users and almost developing in, in front of them. So that's one of the great things that you can just kind of take out of your laptop in a React Native project uh, in Expo, for example, and just show that, okay, uh, I did this yesterday. I was thinking that this button and this button could go here and do this. What do you think? And you kind of can that way kind of skip over the wireframing process almost completely. I don't, I'm not yeah. saying that it's a bad thing, but when you have to, I would say cut corners or save resources and time. Uh, having that kind of a experience that you can just like develop it there and show it, even put it on the user's phone right then and there is like super valuable in that sense. And yeah, kind of, that, that expo is fantastic for doing that, isn't it? You can just yeah. stray away on any device on the network and you're there. Yeah. And you can kind of, it kind of builds on top of that from there. So you can easily get the feedback from the user during the build process, during the development. And even in a case where, where you kind of done with it, you roll it out, you do a, for example, a longer testing phase, let's say a week or something like that, where you want the users to use it every day. If something happens, it's, it's really easy to roll out changes. Uh, yeah. You used, you used to have, uh, you can do the normal better release channels, but with, with Expo and for example, code push, you can also push the code so that the user doesn't even notice that. And so that like the continuous release cycle that you can have when building the prototype is, is, is really valuable for the developers. The users don't necessarily need to have, have to know about that thing. Uh, but for them, it will just look like everything works like magic from the start. So that's always the desired outcome of the thing that, user doesn't even feel right realize that they're being used as guinea pigs to build something yeah so one thing i actually want to jump in on is you mentioned code push and interestingly enough code push is something that um you know me and ricky at our 
um, job currently, we've been kind of evaluating code push and wondering um, if this would make sense for our product that we work on. And I guess I'm just kind of curious, like what your thoughts on it are, um, like how easy is it to use? How easy is the setup? Um, you know, what are you thinking about it? Uh, I'd say the, the use is in relative, t- relative terms, it's, it's pretty easy. Uh, there are some problems uh, at times, uh, but then always there's the way that you can basically fall back to the normal way of releasing through App Store, Connect, or, or Play Store, better release channels. So in that sense, it works pretty well. Uh, however, where it really shines is, is those like small moments when you, for example, have a bug or something in, in there that you really need to get fixed. And you don't want to go to the user and say that, hey, download this new version, but you just kind of want to do it in the background Maybe it's just a minor thing that doesn't even hasn't even yet surfaced in the in the users uh, uses yet. Like one example I have, which is uh, which is kind of interesting in the sense that when we were piloting with this one one big company, uh, we had agreed on certain set of features. Uh, however, uh, during the testing phase or during the development phase, we had to actually forgot to implement one of those like completely. And we were two weeks into the testing. It's a, it was a four-week testing period. And one of the users sent us an email, which was actually, I think it was also the project manager from the client side sent us an email that, hey, there was supposed to be this feature, but it's not working for me. So uh, have, you, have you guys done something wrong now in this case? And, and of course, I, I got that email on something like Friday evening. I got super scared that, okay, this is a big customer. We can't lose them over this minor thing. Uh, so actually built that feature over the weekend and released it using code push, I think on like Sunday evening. Uh, and on Monday, I got an email that, hey, no, works now. So I think it must have been something wrong on my end. So those are the cases where, okay, that's, uh, I would say that's a little bit even unethical, but those are the cases where it really shines that you can fix something that you kind of messed up without actually causing any any harm to the user in this sense. So. I'd say it's 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 worth it. There are some like I've had problems with Apple, for example, two times declining to to release an update to the app because of code push. Uh, but then when I submit it again, they just approved it. So I think it's it depends a little bit on the reviewer who reviews the app in that sense. But never had any problems with Google on that side. So might be just Apple's being super strict about the stuff. So. Yeah, that's actually, I wanted to ask about that because I've heard from Apple, because just reading their documentation, that they are against any kind of add-ins which are going to circumvent their normal app store procedures. And I kind of get that because it means that you could produce an app that passes everything and then it release something and turn it into a malicious app and they would have no control over that. But you found that actually you can get through that? Yeah, I think the I think the official statement at one point, at least from Apple, was that as long as it doesn't alter the like full functionality of the app, it's okay. So if it's basically cool. just fixing a bug or or maybe doing minor adjustments there, there and there, it's okay. But if you're rolling out like a huge feature that that Apple hasn't, for example, had in the previous releases, I think those might get you into trouble uh, mm-hmm. quite easily. So, but yeah, it's, I've had you know, only these two times when I had the problem. Uh, on both of those times, it was uh, we just basically submitted the app again and said that this is just a minor bug fix. 
uh, and stuff like that. And we've been using code push ever since the beginning there and we don't reuse it to just basically fix bugs in some cases. And then it was just approved without any, any comments or stuff like that. So I, I think oh, that's it, really cool. they're kind of, I think they're kind of looking it through their fingers at this point, which is <laughs> <laughs> as far as it works, I'm, I'm okay with it. So, yeah, that's cool. I think it's a totally solid use case to uh, convince a user you didn't break anything. Yeah. Like if you've got a client that needs something the next day, I think that absolutely checks out. Yeah. When I'm building a new product, G2i is the company that I call to help me find a developer who can build it. G2i is a hiring platform run by engineers that matches you with React, React Native, GraphQL, and mobile developers that you can trust. Whether you are a new company building your first product or an established company that wants additional engineering help, G2i has the talent you need to accomplish your goals. Go to g2i.co to learn more about what G2i has to offer. In my experience, G2i has linked me up with experienced engineers that can fit my budget. And the G2i staff are friendly and easy to work with. They know how product development works and can help you find the perfect engineer for your stack. Go to g2i.co to learn more about G2i. So kind of bringing it back to prototyping a little more, moving away from code push, um, I guess I'm kind of curious, you know, so you've kind of mentioned for like one product, you had multiple prototypes you were making. Uh, one of them was a game. How are you like figuring out what the winning prototype is? Is this just something where you're collectively sitting down with your, you know, your um, coworkers and saying like, this one feels the best, or are you quantifying it in some way? Like, are you showing it to test groups? Uh, how, you, how do you determine, you know, this is the winning one right here? Yeah, it's a, it's the best way to succeed in this is to set the goals beforehand. So for example, what kind of feedback, what kind of, let's say metrics you want to get out of the users. If you're doing a limited release, do you want the people to actually use it every day and, and do something really cool with it? Uh, if you go on an abstract level, but also on like that, if you go call to the users after the piloting phase, for example, let's say you have 10 users using it, the, the feedback on that part has to be really good in order to prototype to survive. But of course, that doesn't mean like the, the idea with prototype is that some of them survive, some of them die. Like that's the nature of it. Uh, so what you should always try to get out of a prototype is valuable kind of validated learning in this sense. So the only case where, where a prototype was complete waste of time is if you didn't learn anything. So for example, when we built a game, people really liked it. Uh, and we briefly considered that, hey, this could actually be something that instead of like building a sleep coaching app, we could actually build a game where you just compete against your friends. Uh, however, it was the, the, although the user feedback on that was really good, the users were kind of un, uncapable of saying that uh, what could make even, what would, what would make it even better and what would make it so that they continue using it. So in this case, they were just thinking in terms of, uh, I think it was a four week testing pilot. There was an, it was nice for a month, like it was really nice to look at it uh, every other day, every week. But on a game level, if you're developing a game, that's a really low level of uh, engagement. So it's not really worth developing, although it, it is cool. Uh, it's just when you start to think about the business model and everything comes kind of useless in that sense. So so that's, that's where you kind of have to draw the line that uh, is the feedback you're getting validating the idea that you had in the beginning 
and having clear goals in the beginning uh, that, okay, this is something we're going to stop here, or maybe we're going to do an- another iteration with this, this app and build something additional to that. Of course, in that case, you can also do that during the, like the testing process. Like let's say that you have the four week testing period, the pilot phase or whatever. One user comes to you and says that, Hey, this is okay. But what you, this is really missing is this really crucial thing. And if you build that and you see that, okay, now it actually is the users and everything engagement went up. That means that, okay, you finally got the one thing you're the one thing you were there for to understand and to learn about. So that is the way you validate it. Yeah, no, I can totally, even just listening to you walk through the whole, like the game thing and and listening to your users, um, what they're kind of saying about it afterward, I can really even just see uh, like your brain unfolding and like discovering, um, you know, what was really working and what wasn't and just the value of prototyping right there becomes super obvious. Um, And I guess, so one thing you kind of touched on a little bit, but it sounds like at some point you kind of are using some level of analytics um, to determine what users are doing. So how important, um, are analytics and how much do you pay attention to that when prototyping? Uh, there's a, two, there's a, like two ways of looking at that. So if you're, let's say, testing out the prototype with a lot of users, then analytics becomes pretty evidently really useful. Let's say you have at least a hundred users at that point, what the user is doing in the app, what views they're looking at, what buttons they're pressing. That's really important. But when you have, let's say you do a lot smaller pilot, let's say you have just 10 people, maybe it's something that you're developing internally in a, in a, in a corporation or something like that. There, the analytics isn't that valuable getting the like, direct feedback from the users, just going to them and talking to them is all more valuable than what you can get out of the analytics. Although there is a, there's one way how we can benefit you. So when you use analytics to spot something that even the user hasn't really noticed, it's, uh, it's even more, uh, it can become beneficial even with smaller amount of users. So, so for example, we use analytics sometimes to spot like usability issues. So we can, we might, for example, wrap uh, certain text elements, certain image or something like that in a touchable without feedback. And then just put that to emit uh, an analytics event that user click this or press this. And then we can kind of see from there that, hey, they're actually expecting, expecting that you can click this and go somewhere or press this and go somewhere on their mobile. Uh, we've had this happen a couple of times. So in those cases, pretty uh, good to actually roll out the analytics in the beginning, but you ju- just shouldn't uh, base your assumption based on only those things. You don't get also get the user feedback because analytics doesn't really highlight the how the users feel about it. It just highlights their behavior with it in some cases and in some cases in case it doesn't even do that so uh definitely always combine the two okay so just to touch on that again actually just a little bit more information um is what you're saying there do we just wrap innocuous elements in your app in the non-touchable opacity and then we see what people are touching even when they're not supposed to so you can see the path that user is trying to take and you can extrapolate data from there yeah, uh, touchable opacity might not work because I think that gives some kind of a feedback, but the touchable 
without feedback doesn't give any kind of a feedback. That is uh, literally I what I meant to say. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, but like that way you can get this idea that, hey, users are actually pointing this and this on the screen, uh, trying to get somewhere. If you ask them, they might not say that, uh, no, I wasn't going anywhere. Uh, mainly because if you ask them that, hey, you just pointed that, are you expecting it to lead somewhere? it kind of feels like you're treating them as idiots. So in those kind of situations, when you see that, okay, someone has been repeatedly pressing this, I don't know, chart or something, you can see that they're definitely expecting to get more out of it. And then you can kind of go in with that and ask them, hey, what do you think if this, like clicking on this thing brought you to this view and you could actually see more about this stuff and what would you like to see there? And those are kind of like the hidden behaviors that you can kind of uncover with analytics, uh, especially when you apply it to the touchable without feedback. But it only works with, uh, I wouldn't do it in production apps. I think it's, it messes up the screen reader experience quite a lot. <laughs> so, Oh yeah, for accessibility, that doesn't sound ideal yeah. actually. No, yeah, cool. no. But in, in conjunction with actual user testing where you've got a, a group in front of you, yeah, uh, sounds like it'd be really powerful to uh, get some improved decisions about the UI. Yep. Can we talk a little bit about libraries that you use in prototyping? Yeah, sure. Uh, I think I'm I'm kind of opinionated in this sense. So I used to use Expo quite a lot, and I think it's re- still a really valuable tool. I would say that it's a uh, it's like the I consider it the number one prototyping tool for React Native, mainly because it what it provides out of out of box. So you have all the components uh, there. You have the basically uh, like tools how to release it to to apps, how to prototype on apps without do, going through the App Store route, for example. Uh, you have similar functionality to Code Push, for example. So in that sense, it's 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 really useful. It's easy to bundle on top of that. Of course, where it falls kind of short is if you need anything on the, let's say, native side. Uh, and for example, in our case, in one project that we built, uh, we needed the Apple Health Kit. So we could get some some vital health data from there. And exploiting the support, so we had to, had to scrap that at that point. Uh, but React Native, of course, works there. You can basically just eject from the Expo and, and continue working from there. So Expo, in, in that sense, is a really good starting point. When it comes to analytics, uh, I think my tool of choice is, or has been at least, the App Center. I think they're uh, from Microsoft. Uh, I think they're now kind of focusing on DevOps from these days. I'm not sure if they're going to get rid of the uh, analytics part. I think they just got rid of the authentication part that they had in the service. So Mm -hmm. it depends to busy, but that has been actually pretty good uh, for just doing, doing the basic analytics. Of course, there's also the analytics provided by Firebase. That's pretty easy to use as well and pretty good. For the, um, Uh, for for the, for the App Center, because it's a Microsoft product, is it, interact at all because uh, code push is also a microsoft product yeah um so do they play really nicely together have any like cross features or anything or do they feel like totally separate essentially uh the well they play pretty nicely together because they they have the web web platform where you can do stuff also but they're also code push has the cli where what's you know, what i think that's the only thing i've used for for releasing it i'm not sure if you can actually do it purely from the web UI. 
but the analytics uh, that you can get in the web UI pretty easily, although what you can see there is a little bit limited. Uh, you can see the events and, and, and so on, but you can pretty easily export that data to, uh, to other places and get started from there if you want. Gotcha. Cool. Makes sense. Yeah. And um, Firebase too is super popular. So I definitely see a lot of people using that one. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of uh, analytics libraries for React Native these days. And if then you can also just throw in basically uh, native, in one, native, native analytics libraries. Like one, in one project we've used Adobe's one. I don't remember what the name of that is, but we've used that for analytics so at least. And that's only, that doesn't even have a React Native side, if I remember right. Makes sense. That's cool, man. Um, so when it comes to like prototyping, um, do you work like closely with the UX person? Um, because like for me to think about prototyping, like I, I don't even know where to start because it's like, okay, like I'm like usually like we, cause and at Activision we have like our, you know, UX and UI guy that like gives us the finished product and we kind of just go ahead and build it. So I don't really understand, like, I don't really know the process of like what goes into like prototyping. Um, but is that something you have to do? Like, are you the sole, just only person working on the prototypes and the UX? Or do you have somebody that works with you? Uh, yeah, in some cases, uh, I've had a, like a separate designer. Uh, it's actually, if you can, it's even better because <laughs> they usually are like more talented in that matter. However, because I, I used to be a designer, uh, the transition from basically first talking to the user, then making kind of like a mock-up of the stuff and then coding it is pretty easy for me to just do by myself. Uh, however, it doesn't bring the best results in my opinion. So there's actually this, I, I think I just like to think it as the magic number three. So you should always have like three people working on the product, no more, no less. Uh, and one of them should be a designer and two of them should be developers with kind of that they're, they complement each other in, in terms of what they're capable of. So other one might be more capable with doing animations and US stuff and the other one might be doing something backend stuff. And that's like the, like the trinity of getting like good prototypes, even with high technical requirements. So if you need like really technical machine learning stuff or something like that, you can still manage that with three people, uh, even in the mobile context, with one one of them is really focused on the React Native side, and one of them is a designer. So that's how it works. But it's always a it's a, always a team game, and I'd say that that's the only way to get good results. That you have a team there building the prototype. If you do it yourself, uh, you start to work too much on assumptions. So even if you're talking to the customer, uh, the user, and they're saying that okay, I want this you're always taking this kind of leap of faith on assuming that, okay, maybe they want to see something like this. And then you build that. If you're doing all of that alone, uh, you might end up building more of these things that kind of see, seem evident to you, but someone else would kind of say that, I don't think that's the thing, the way to go. So how do you start like finding people to test it with? Like, I know you can probably just ask online or like on your Twitter or something like, hey, can you like test on my prototype? But like, what's the best, like, have you found like any like good ways to like, kind of like ask people and like, kind of like, how do you get that feedback loop, um, you know, from their, your testers? Uh, I think the best way to, to do that is in, in a way that 
already when you start out, you have kind of the, let's say the prototype prototype user, so to say. So you know the user, you know what uh, what their problem is, and you're trying to get those people included from from the beginning. So when it comes to the like eventual testing phase. Uh, you just ask them that, hey, this product that you've been helping us develop, you want to try it out now? Like that's the easiest. I think most startup founders do this type just by doing a landing base and getting the user basically there. But in the process I've worked with, uh, we used to work a lot of with, with a lot of big corporations doing, let's say, construction or stuff like that. Uh, in those cases, we would just talk to the people, to the client, on the, to the client that, hey, you're asking us to solve this problem. Could we actually meet the people who have this problem here in their company instead of just working on your assumptions? And that's usually where, where we got started. But if you're building something that's, uh, let's say, like really consumer facing, uh, then then going the so-called, I think it's called lean UX route, is, is just to put up a landing base, describe the problem that you're trying to solve, I don't know, put that somewhere, Twitter or somewhere, see if people sign up for, for it and then just working onwards from there. Uh, hopefully in a way that you actually contact them and ask that, okay, I want to talk a little bit about this problem. Though. So this is my assumption. Please tell me how you're actually experiencing the problem. and How do you, what, would you want to solve it? Do you see yourself, um, do you get more feedback from the user or more from like analytics usually more from the user uh or let's say that uh in in some cases the users really know what they want uh but if you have enough data analytics can kind of solve these disagreements between the let's say the user and the developers so for example if you just go ahead and ask the customers, they might say that, hey, it would be really cool to have this and this feature. And if you stop there and start building it, it might be actually the wrong move to make that, that part. But if you have, for example, the same data from, uh, you have analytics from, let's say 100 users on top of that, you can kind of see that, okay, these users, have they tried to do something like this, what the one user is asking for? If the analytics doesn't show, then I would go back to the to the users and ask them that, ask maybe another user that, hey, we're thinking about this kind of a feature. What do you think? Do you think that's valuable for you or not? And like in that sense, it can kind of validate your assumptions that you get from what the user is saying. Many of you have probably heard about App Store optimization and how it can help you get more downloads. There's a lot of demand for apps right now, so it's a really great time to give it a try. It's easier than you think. The folks at AppFigures have easy step-by-step -step guides and intuitive tools, which many indie developers are using to get more downloads. The guys who run it are indie devs who have a need and created the tool. 11 years later, it's an all-in-one platform for developers who want to get more downloads and make more money with their apps. Try AppFigures for free, and if you like it, you can use our special code RNR3030 to get 30% off for the next three months. That makes a lot of sense. I could see how analytics becomes less important, especially in like the prototyping phase, because you're prototyping, you're not necessarily going to have this huge user base of people that already exist that they'll aggregate all this data for you to, you know, make decisions on. So I, I could see how important it is to actually really bring in an actual human and have that human element and have those real conversations um, to figure out kind of what you're doing. 
And I guess, I guess what I'm just curious about too, is like, so you have like these people that come in, you do work with them, you kind of land on a prototype. Um, maybe you had a few iterations and, but when you kind of get to the, the tail end of this, um, how do you start to transition into making the actual product itself? So, you know, you have your winning prototype. Do you still kind of like keep that same code base and iterate on it? Like, are you going through and ripping out all those touchables you've wrapped everything in? So it's production ready. Like what's your whole process from, okay, we did it guys. Like we got, we got our winner. Now we need to build more. I definitely go both, both ways. Uh, but I would say that the best way is just to throw the prototype into in the trash. And, and that's actually the best way also to treat the product from the start, that you're not building something that will eventually become production ready. Uh, for example, if uh, it might turn out that the idea you're doing, uh, the problem you're trying to solve doesn't actually exist. So then there's, uh, if you get into this idea that, okay, we will build on top of this prototype, that in, might in some cases lead you to kind of overvaluing the prototype, thinking that it's something more than it actually is. It's supposed to be a prototype. It's supposed to probe into the user's behavior, into the user's problem, and actually uncover the thing you're actually trying to solve. So when you start treating it like something that you're eventually going to throw in the trash, you don't love it too much, I would say. So when it comes time, it turns out that the prototypes were really good the best way is to just throw in the trash and start developing from, from, from scratch. Usually you have a better overview of also what you would do differently at that point. So for example, uh, this one project that we created, the prototype was really successful uh, and it wasn't bad code in, in, in any way. Uh, but as the, as one of the customers asked for it, that they would like to actually start using and buy for it. we said that, okay, it's going to take two months for us to, to kind of fix, fix it in that time, or I think for three months. And we built the product. It was a really simple product, but we built it from scratch at that point, because it was just during the building process, during the whole prototyping process, we had gone through a couple of different iterations and we just figured out that the way we started out was not the way we would do it again if we if we would have to. And at that point, it was really evident that, okay, let's just throw it in the trash. But then we've also done it so that uh, we build a prototype and just kind of continued building on top of that. It can work uh, in some cases, but as the team grows larger, for example, which is hopefully the case if it turns out that this is something actually worth solving and you bring in more developers, maybe, maybe some consultants here and there, they will start... Uh, questioning some of the choices you've made during the prototyping process, most likely. Uh, or if they don't, then you probably have spent too much time building the prototype and you've gone too deep on the, let's say, fidelity of the prototype. Uh, so yeah, definitely uh, my, my suggestion would be to throw it in the trash and treat it for the beginning as something that you will eventually throw in the trash, no matter how good or bad it is. Yeah, I know you haven't mentioned it specifically during this podcast, but I watched your um, like lightning talk that you gave and essentially you boiled down your process to build fast, deliver fast and measure everything. Um, yeah. I almost think you should append, throw it in the trash. Um, yeah, right, that's right true. Yeah. Um, but no, like I, I really like that whole point of uh, you mentioned something that was really like um, profound too, which was, um, you know, people could end up loving it too much. And uh, this is meant to be like a rapid fire thing that you're developing quickly to see what works. And, and if that's the case, you're 
probably not writing your best code. You're just writing something to, to probe, like you said. Um, so yeah, I guess I personally end up loving things I work on too much because I'm like, oh, I sunk all this time into it. I couldn't possibly trash it. So that's good advice to, you know, just swallow it and be like, okay, it served its purpose. Let's just put it in the trash and do it for real. Yeah. And there's a, there's actually a one method I've kind of learned throughout the years, uh, how to fight against yourself in not starting to love something too much. So I'm a big fan of using this. It's, I think in design it's called the wizard of Oz method. So basically building something that is actually requires a lot of work to do by hand in the behind the scenes, but for user, it looks like everything is automated. And if you do that during the prototyping, you, you kind of build yourself in, the, in a corner in terms that you just can't continue building on top of that. So let's say that you've, you were building a, I don't know, a newsfeed reader. Uh, if you would have to basically, every time you add a new article there, you would have to go and write it in code. Uh, it would work on a prototype scale, but not, not on a scale that for like, like mass, mass production and so on. And then it becomes really evident that, okay, this doesn't work because it requires so much handwork to the work to be done by hand. So it has to be thrown in the dress and we have to figure out how we can actually do this stuff that doesn't was done by hand somehow some other way that doesn't require us to sit every, every day, eight hours, uh, coding the views again or something like that. I think that's a really interesting distinction to make. Um, what kind of differences apart from that are you finding between, say you build something that's just for a handful of users, uh, you make a prototype. Do you chuck the prototype completely or do you build on the prototype when you make it for a larger audience? Supposing you've built like five iterations, you're like number four, that's the winning prototype. Do you take the prototype and do you edit and work on that code base or do you chuck it away and start thinking again about all of the architecture and the way that you're going to make it? I, I usually just chuck it away. Uh, <laughs> the first, yeah, because the, the first idea that comes to you is just that, hey, this is how I would build it. And as you're building it, you learn that, okay, this doesn't work or this isn't the way I pictured it would work. And so it's just easier to throw it in the trash in many cases, but also building that into the whole process of actually throwing it into the trash in the end uh, can also kind of save your save you from, from that part. So I don't know, kill your darlings is the, the key to succeed yeah, in, in prototyping. It's difficult though, isn't it? It, it is, yeah. You spend so much time working on that. It's, it's really hard to get rid of that. But if you kind of hate it from the beginning in a way that you treat it as the uh, ugly duckling or something like that, then, then you eventually you will have, I'd say that you have a easier time at least throw it in the trash. That's true. How many prototypes have you worked on so far? Uh, <laughs> I, I've lost count. Uh, so many. Yeah, I think... I say something around 50 at least. So do you have like any like gotchas that you've like learned along the way? Uh, well, well, one was definitely the one that learned to throw in the trash yeah. uh, and, and get it to the users like as soon as possible. What was like the uh, first way you prototyped in the beginning? Um, was it kind of just, did you do it like pen and paper or like, was it kind of like some software offline? Uh, and I know right now you're you're using React Native, but what are some of the earlier yeah. ones that you that you used? Uh, 
they were actually kind of hacky, uh, but hacky in a cute way. So before I before I kind of started doing uh, consultancy stuff and stuff like that, I actually I, I worked at a at a bank, a big Finnish bank, and we were developing with enterprise Java, but it was a it was a web application and. But the release cycle and, and doing, putting out new features and prototyping especially was super painful with it. Uh, so most of the things I did there were actually that we would just, I would hack around putting an iframe on one view and then coding, for example, the contents of that iframe in CodePen uh, back then. And that actually worked in in many cases. Uh, of course, it, it kind of fell apart when fell apart when when you needed like real data. So, for example, in some cases we needed real banking data. In those cases, CodePen couldn't really work. Uh, so we'd have to do something else. But that's that's the way it kind of started out. And and one time I even implemented uh, Invision, which is a really Common, uh, really now prototyping tool used by a lot of designers. I think they've now transitioned to Figma or something like that. But back then, a lot of people used Envision. So we actually put a Envision iframe inside one of our web apps, and it was just a clickable paper prototype. And we were asking the user that, hey, you could do it here. It would look like this. How how do you like it? And they couldn't tell the difference that it was just like a static mockup where you could basically, there were hotspots that you would click and the data would always stay the same. We get the, we got the feedback and then we started building on top of that. But yeah, in the beginning, it's mostly just like doing everything with web stuff, even in, in mobile context and even this enterprise Java thing, horrible mess that we were then working on. So do you get, um, is there more, so do you, do you think that there's more benefits using React Native now than it was in the past? I would say so. Yeah, there's a there's such a huge amount of different like components made by different users around the world that most of them actually end up solving your problem from the beginning. Like you can get really detailed interactions from the start by using I don't know just some pre-made pre-made. Uh, animations and stuff. Also, some of the components, uh, pre-made components, for example, in, I think, React Native Paper is pretty good in that sense. So it has definitely come a long way. And in the beginning, I think we actually tried building it with React Native like already in 2015. But at, at that point, it was a bit too young at that point. So it took us something like, I think it was two years. And then we cut up rediscovered this and was like, hey, this is actually really good. Let's start doing stuff with this instead of doing the traditional web stuff. Yeah. Did did, did you see um, any slowdown in the beginning trying to get up a, a prototype up and going at first when you started with React Native um, or was it kind of like just just as fast? I would say that uh, I didn't use it quite quite that much in, back in 2015 or something like that. Uh, I... Uh, yeah, I would say that it's gotten a lot easier throughout the years. And nowadays, uh, especially now with the most recent releases, especially with uh, with Expo, it got like it got almost criminally easy to get started building on that. Uh, I would say it's almost on level uh, with some of the web tools that you can use to build code. So, for example, in, uh, the reason why we used CodePen, CodePen in the in the bank that I worked was because we had such a restri high restrictions on installing any software on our computers that we couldn't actually install Node. So we had to do it everything in CodePen. 
Uh, and that's kind of where I learned to love all these web-based tools of, uh, for, for coding. And now you can, nowadays you can almost do that with Expo with their, I don't know, is it snippets? I don't remember what's, what they go, but you can implement snacks. the code on snack. Yeah. With, with Expo snacks, you can kind of do that. What, what, what code pen used to be for me, uh, in terms of being like the ultimate prototyping tool. Uh, that you could use in this really restricted uh, enterprise network. It's cool seeing just React Native. I, I hear it a lot. You know, people mention evaluating it back in 2015, and then you know, kind of tuning out for a little bit, and then coming back to it and and really enjoying it later. Um, so it's great to hear that you're able to utilize it to just quickly develop all these prototypes and everything. It's it's kind of awesome. Um, on that note we're kind of closing out on our time a little bit. So we're going to move on to our picks um, and we'll kind of have the panelists go first and then for two, we'll get to you last. So we'll start with James today. James, what is your pick? Hey, um, so UK is still in lockdown. Uh, and this week I've been, I started to learn the guitar again and I've picked up a piece of software called Rocksmith. And I, have heard about this. I never really thought about using it until recently. I thought I'd give it a go. And I really like it. It's, uh, it's an interesting way to learn. It's not the only way that you can learn guitar, but it is essentially gamifying the guitar learning experience. So if you've played rock band, if you played guitar hero, it's that, but you use your actual guitar and you learn to play actual songs. Um, it's worked out pretty well. It's got a really nice feature where you can do like a, a jam backing track and stuff, and you can get other digitized musicians to play with you. And the game and the software will respond to the way that you're playing. And it's just, it's a really nice way to improve on the guitar. I wouldn't say it's necessarily the best way. I'm sure it doesn't really replace paying somebody for actual lessons, but I've picked up a couple of songs in the last week and I'm pretty happy with it. So yeah, that's my pick for this week. I know our users can't see um, our webcams and they just get the audio, but right now James has two guitars behind him. So I, we should have seen this pick coming eventually. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that's great. Um, it's cool that you're actually staying up with like a actual physical hobby, um, you know, during this time. I, ha I was going to pick a number of other things that were all computer game related because I've been doing a lot of gaming as well. But I was like, I, let's, let's do something a little bit different. I think it's important to try and, get off the computer. Um, although of course I'm actually just incorporating more computer use into my everyday guitar playing, but it's good to do something physical for once. This is the perfect transition to my pick because my pick is literally a computer game, um, <laughs> which now I feel incredibly guilty about because I probably <laughs> should have picked something more physical. Um, but yeah, so my pick is a, a computer game called Slay the Spire. Uh, it's also available on Switch now. Uh, kind of been getting back into this lately because they've come out with some updates and it's super addictive. Um, it's a single player card game, so it's not like like a PvP game. Um, it's it's a roguelike. So basically you traverse like a dungeon and you move like across a map. Um, and as you go, you fight various things and you kind of get more powerful and you have to make decisions about how your deck is built. And because it's a roguelike, um, it's really hard and you usually don't win. In fact, it's almost impossible to win most of the time. Uh, but each time you kind of learn a little more and you get a little better um, and the choices are super interesting. So 
I highly recommend it. Yeah, I think you rem- I remember you telling me about that. I think I'm going to get it on the Switch. I'm going to try it out. It's fun. It's, I mean, you can waste a lot of time on it. Just don't be discouraged right away. Like, it, <laughs> it, it does take a little bit of, like, face planting before. But, yeah, Ricky, what's, uh, what's your pick this week? Uh, so, my pick um, is going to be an app. It's called Calm. It's a meditation app. Um, so funny thing is, um, you know, I, I know you guys are working on a sleeping app. Um, so funny thing, I was meditating with my wife late at night, right before bed and we're doing a meditation session. And, um, <laughs> next thing you know, <laughs> I started snoring <laughs> you know, and she was like, what are you doing? Like, we're supposed to be meditating. And I was like, I just knocked out. Like, yeah, it was super funny, but it's been good. Like we've been trying to do it every day. So it's been super, um, helpful for us especially just always being home all day. Awesome. Sounds super comfortable, actually. Uh, that's like proper meditation. When you're so relaxed, you fall asleep. <laughs> I know, right? And uh, so, Pertu, what is uh, your pick for this week? Uh, Finland is in, in lockdown as well. Uh, it will be at least for a month more. Uh, but my pick is going to be this book uh, called Lost and Founder uh, by Rand Fiskin. He's the... He's the founder and used to be a CEO of this company called Moss.com. So they do SEO tooling. Uh, and the reason why I like this book a lot is because I've, I've started three companies. And the thing is that every time you finish up with one, you're like, you feel this, that, okay, it's, it's, it, that, was, that was great. Uh, it looks really good in, 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 the, in, in retrospect. And then you think that, okay, I'm going to start another one. And then it kind of gets really hard. You remember that, damn, this was a lot harder than I remembered. And and Lost and Founder is the the only book that I can kind of say that it provides this help and guidance on those situations. Uh, It's a great one. It talks about, it's not the traditional Silicon Valley story. It's more like this, I think the book starts out with 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 Rand Fiskin being half a million in debt with a consultancy company that he's built together with his mother. Uh, so the the setting is already really really weird. But then he kind of starts talking about how how we ended up building SEO uh, Moz and and the journey is just so interesting. He talks a lot about depression, a lot about burning out, how to balance life and work. Uh, so it's like a, it's a, it's kind of like a guidebook uh, on how, how to build a company. And I would say the only guidebook that is worth reading in terms of, uh, in, in terms of actually building a company. So yeah, that's good. Definitely worth reading. Awesome. Yeah. That sounds super relevant at a time like this. Well, thank you, Pertu, for joining us today. And thank you to the panelists as well. Pertu, if uh, listeners want to find you, what is the best way to stay in touch with you or to see what's going on with you? Uh, my Twitter is by uh, the initial of my first name and then my last name, so it's a really difficult one. Uh, we'll, have it, we'll, have, we'll have it in the okay, show notes. Okay, that's, so. that's great. But Twitter uh, and also my personal website, which is plus my last name, uh, .com. Perfect. All right. Yeah, definitely, listeners, please go follow, uh, get the latest. Uh, Ricky, where can listeners find you? Uh, same here on Twitter at Romero Ricky.io. And James. I'm on Twitter as well. You can get me at Stern Job Name. And listeners, you can find me at Tim Jung Dev. So thanks, everyone. Thanks for coming today and thanks for listening. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. 
Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.